that portion of Psalm 119 really describes the situation to which our text from 1 Peter 4 speaks. The ungodly, the lawless, they, they seek to lead us astray. They seek to entrap us. They seek to persecute us. But we look to the Lord and we seek the guidance, the strength, the encouragement that He gives so that we might live differently, not giving in to the, the temptations, not being discouraged by the persecution, but, but trusting always that God will provide what we need. 1 Peter 4, we're going to look at the first six verses, which really help us to understand who we are, what our calling is as Christians. The Apostle writes, Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, therefore, with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, They might live in the Spirit the way God does. Amen. Beloved congregation chosen in Christ, have you ever asked why you are here? What is your purpose? Why do you endure that day-to-day struggle with all of the, the work and the conflict and the pain this life holds Why does God want us to endure it all? What's the ultimate benefit of all that endurance? Truth is, sometimes it's difficult to answer those questions honestly. Sometimes life makes you feel like a hamster on a wheel, going round and round and round, expending a lot of energy, but not really accomplishing anything worthwhile. And that can especially be true for those who openly identify with Christ in a world that despises Him. When you openly identify with Christ, it's costly at times. It requires an awful lot of effort and it brings an awful lot of scorn. And you wonder... What good has it done for the people around me? What good has it done for me? Wouldn't it just be easier to confess Christ in my heart and just blend in? Just live the kind of life I always lived before and the kind of life the people around me live. Then I wouldn't draw attention. I wouldn't be like a lightning rod. And yet I could still know Christ. I could still confess Him in my heart. I could still worship Him. And there are folks who who say that's that's fine. They'll urge their Muslim neighbors to acknowledge Christ as Savior in their hearts, but just to keep living as a Muslim so that they don't attract some very unhappy attention. Or they'll tell their neighbors who have long been immersed in sin, you know, if you trust in Christ, you'll go to heaven. Don't worry about the rest. Surely that would be easier, right? But the thing is, Jesus didn't come just to save us from hell. 
while we go on living like those who are destined for hell. Jesus loves us too much to leave us, having saved us, to leave us in that lifestyle of rebellion that shows that we're hateful to God, that that excites God's wrath, that dishonors the Lord. He loves us too much to leave us in that place where we're not fulfilling the calling for which we were made. And so this passage, and many like it, call us who have turned to Christ, call us whose sins have been forgiven, to now pursue a new purpose in life. And that's really what this is focused on, this passage. The Lord wants us, having turned to Christ, having been forgiven of our sins, He wants us wholeheartedly to pursue a new purpose so that all of life is pointed to Christ, so that all of life is aimed at honoring Him and showing others who He is. Now, if we do that, it won't be easy, but it will be fulfilling in a way that our old life never could be. And so the first point that we see in this passage, as God calls us to pursue a new purpose in life, is that He wants us to embrace the God-centered purpose of Christ. Notice the passage begins with that word, therefore. I always point that out. It always helps us to understand the passage we're going into, especially when it occurs right at the start. Since therefore, it wants us, the, the, the author, Paul, or Peter, wants us to recall what we just saw, how, how Jesus came and suffered and died for our sake, because of our sins. How Jesus preached to those who were dying in sin. How He gave us the comfort and the encouragement of a sacrament that reminds us that we were joined to Him in His suffering and death, and also in His victory over death. Therefore, because of all that, we have an obligation. And the obligation is to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ has. Now that verb, arm yourselves, that indicates that we're going into battle. Right? The Christian life is a life of warfare. It's a lie to say that if we turn to Christ, all our problems will be over, all our struggles will be at an end. No. The Christian life is a life of warfare, and we need to be armed for the battle. But this is not a conventional war. It's not a war that's fought with guns and with infantry. There won't be airstrikes and mortar rounds exploding on every side. This is a spiritual war. The kind that takes place in the heart and in the mind, in the inner man. It's the kind of war that is fought not with physical weapons, but with weapons of the heart. So the weapon with which we must arm ourselves is the thinking of Christ. The same thinking that drove Jesus to do what He did. The same love that drove Him to die for those who were still His enemies. The same willingness to do whatever it was that God had willed Him to do. This is the weapon with which we must arm ourselves if we're to stand in the war that looms before us. But then Peter says a rather curious thing. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's a curious thing to say. We need to ask, what what exactly does he mean there? Now, of course, Jesus suffered in the flesh for us. In doing so, he suffered the penalty for our sin. He ended his dealings with sin once and for all. 
But Peter's not talking about Jesus there. He says to us, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And then he says to us, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And I want to suggest to you that has a twofold significance. On the one hand, it reminds us that we have been joined to Jesus who suffered for us. Jesus suffered in the flesh for our sin, for our sinfulness as well. And then he rose up victorious over sin, over death, over Satan, over all of it. We, by faith, have been joined to him. We saw that in Colossians 3 in our assurance of pardon. And that means his victory over sin, his victory over Satan, that's ours. We share in it. Once we were slaves to sin, we had no choice. We would always do what was wrong. The only question was, which wrong would we choose? But now, because we've been joined to Christ, in Him we have suffered. In Him we have victory over sin. In Him we have the ability to choose what is right instead of what's wrong. To choose to follow the Lord instead of disobeying Him, rebelling against Him. So that's the first significance of, of saying whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We have the power to cease from sin because we're joined to Christ. But at the same time, we need to fight. It's not automatic. And that points to the second meaning that's wrapped up in that. If we do decide to reject sin, we will suffer in the flesh. It'll bring struggle, denial within us and also from without. It Young people, if you haven't figured this out yet, you're gonna. When you resolve to turn away from sin, it ignites a war within you. You know what you should do, but you also know what you want to do. You know what the Lord said you need to do, but you also know what your friends are telling you you need to do. And you feel like the rope in a battle of tug of war. That's a struggle, that's a fight. And if you make the right choice, if you go to where Jesus says to go, if you do what God tells you to do, well, then you know the struggle of persecution because your, your old friends will prove not to have been friends after all. They'll say really mean things about you. They'll mock you. They'll belittle you. They won't want to hang out with you anymore. That's a struggle. But it's in the midst of that struggle that we learn to cease from sin. It's in the midst of that struggle that we learn to put off the old man and to take up the new man that is formed after the image of Christ. That is part of our calling as Christians. Jesus chose willingly to suffer for us so that we could be saved. And now he wants us, by the power that he gives us, to choose willingly to suffer on his behalf. By standing against the crowd. By rejecting those inner desires to sin. By choosing what is good and what is right and what is holy and what is pleasing to God. Even though it costs us in the moment. This is a fundamental part of the Christian life and a radical departure from what we once were. It's the calling to decide who will I be. What will define me? What is my purpose in life? And Peter tells us there's only two possible answers to those questions. There's either living for the rest of the time in the flesh for human passions, or living for the rest of the time in the flesh for the will of God. 
Living for human passions is what comes natural to us. Do whatever feels right. Do whatever will get you the praise of men. Do whatever comes to hand. But that is always going to lead us into rebellion, into conflict with God, against His will, into the way of Satan. The alternative is to do the will of God. God's will is always good. We might not always recognize that when it involves suffering or loss, when it involves giving up that which we deeply desire to do. But if God commands us and if He prepares us for it, then doing the will of God is the best thing we could ever embrace. Now understand, Peter's not saying we need to live a life of perfection in this world or that we even can. God has not yet, as long as we live in this fallen world, He's not yet equipped us to live perfectly. But He wants us to strive for perfection. He wants us to strive to put off sin, to strive to follow after the the example of Christ. And if we do, then by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, by the victory that Christ has won for us, we will begin putting off those sins. We will begin doing the will of God. And it will be a radical transformation. That's what God wants for us. He loves us too much to leave us unchanged, to leave us in that way of rebellion. So He calls us to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, with the thinking of Christ, so that we can begin putting off sin and putting on Christ-likeness. Folks, this is countercultural. Young people, everything you're seeing on... TikTok and all the other social media platforms tells you that what's true is what you want to be true. And what's right, what's moral, what's good is what feels good to you. And so what's moral and right for me might be different from what's moral and right for you. And man, that, that is an easy way to reassure yourself that no matter what you're doing or what you want to do, you're doing the right thing. But the mind of Christ stands radically opposed to that. The mind of Christ says there is one God who has revealed one truth and that truth is unchanging because our God is unchanging. And we have access to that unchanging truth of God. We have access to the mind of Christ Because we have access to the word that he inspired. And by that word he will show us, he will unveil for us in places like Exodus 20 with his law. The sins that we're so apt to embrace. But also the righteousness that we're called to embrace. And the more we dig into it, the more we pray for insight and wisdom in applying that to our lives. The more we'll see how much of our old self needs to die how much change and transformation we need, but as we embrace it, it'll be amazing. It'll be amazing because we will begin to del- Sorry. We will begin to delight in the things that delight God. We will begin to delight in the things that He reveals. But we must begin by resolving to dig into the mind of Christ, by resolving to study the Word, by 
asking God continually, empower me to understand it, to embrace it, to apply it to my life, no matter what other people say, no matter how they might hate me. But make no mistake, it will be hard. Because what comes natural to us is not this, and we must reject what comes natural. So the second thing we see here is the calling to reject that sin-centered purpose of men. Here's the thing. If we embrace the God-centered purpose of Christ, the the God-directed purpose to which God's Word leads us, we'll stand out. Because that's not how folks living on autopilot, living the natural life, that's not how they behave. But verse 3 tells us that we are, because we're in Christ, we are now done with our wicked ways. It's important for us to hear that. Because what we did, or because we did and we desired to do the same thing that unbelievers all around us do and desire to do. And now God tells us that's enough. As Paul told the people of Athens in Acts 17, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. We hear folks even within church claiming that sin is just too inevitable to fight. You know, young men just, they, they got to sow their wild oats. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, and young ladies, they're going to have to spread their wings. They're going to have to figure it out on their own. It's just the way it is, you know. And sometimes you just, you just got to give in to that temptation. People will tell you that in the church. But it's a lie. God says no. As, it doesn't matter whether you have lived for the ways of the flesh only for a brief span of time, your first eight years. Or whether you're now 45 and still living the ways of the flesh. It doesn't matter how long you have embraced that natural way of rebellion. It's been enough. Its time is at an end. Now, today, he says, is the time to put it out, to get rid of it, to be done with it. The time that is past suffices. It is enough for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And then he describes that lifestyle, that kind of action that comes natural to every single one of us. Unbelievers pursue sensuality and passions. They desire experiences that immerse them in the sensual pleasures. They follow after cravings that they then turn into idols, false gods which they actively serve. Now understand, God created the pleasures of the flesh for good if they're used the way He designed them to be used. When used within the context of marriage, sexuality is a rich blessing. It serves to deepen the unity God has given between a man and a wife. It cements that unity by drawing husband and wife closer to one another than they are with anyone else. That is a great, immense blessing. But when it's misused, when it's shared outside the bonds of marriage through adulterous behavior, or when it's enjoyed alone through pornography or sexting or the like, then your sexuality becomes a poison that destroys relationships and tears you apart from others and isolates you. Proverbs 6 says it's like hot coals used properly. A number of you have wood burners in your houses or wood boilers outside. Hot coals 
can be a rich blessing there, right? They can warm your house. If necessary, they can cook your food. But if you take them out of the proper confines of that stove, of that boiler, well, they can burn down your house. They can do a lot of damage. And likewise, sexuality, when it's used outside the bonds of marriage, it'll destroy whatever it touches. Yet that's precisely what unbelievers delight to do and with all of God's good gifts. So they pursue drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. Now there's nothing wrong with enjoying the blessing of of the vine. Matter of fact, Jesus' first public miracle was turning water into very good wine. Both the Psalms and Paul extolled the virtues of wine used properly. But when it's used improperly, when it's used to drunk to bring about drunkenness. Well now, now it's used to dull the senses. Now it's used to remove inhibitions. Now it's used to sh- to silence that conscience that would normally not allow you to do those things that you want to do. But with a few glasses, oh now, now you're willing to silence that voice and do that thing and embrace rebellion against God. That's why they pursue drunkenness. That's why they use drugs. That's why they enjoy all of the illicit substances. Why? It's so that they can free themselves from that stubborn voice of conscience that says, you know better. Well, we need to know better. We need to not put ourselves in that situation where we will be more tempted, more empowered to stand against God. Along with that, unbelievers pursue lawless idolatry. The unbeliever embraces lawlessness, which is to say rebellion. He's seeking to cast off the rule of God and to seat himself on the throne instead. Surely we should never even think of embracing such wickedness. And yet, that is precisely, young people hear this, this is precisely what we do when we embrace the self-centered sins that come natural to our hearts. God calls us to something far better. In fact, he calls us to the the exact opposite of what comes natural. Instead of selfish lust, he calls us to cultivate a love that is selfless. Instead of drunken stupor, he calls us to embrace a godly self-control. Instead of lawless idolatry, he calls us to embrace obedient worship of the true God. So we must reject the idolatrous depravity that comes natural, and we need to pursue instead the ways commended by Christ in His Word. But understand, when we do that, folks will notice. And the unbelievers will not be impressed. Verse 4 says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They think it's strange because it's incomprehensible to them that someone would reject the momentary pleasures of the flesh. They live for the moment. They live for the the, the thrill of the instant. Why wouldn't you do that? Sure, there might be a hangover tomorrow, but tonight we party. Sure, there might be a heartache down the road, but you know what? We might die tomorrow, so just enjoy the passions of the flesh at the moment. Why would you reject that? Why would you not do that, they ask. And so they scratch their heads and they look at you like you just turned green. And then if you persist in following the ways of the Lord, they'll turn on you. Peter says they will malign you. They will speak evil of you because your repentant lifestyle offends them. Why is that? 
Children, understand, if you live a Christ-like life, if you embrace the ways that the Lord commends, people will speak evil of you because the way you're living reminds them that they don't have to live their way. They don't have to embrace those sins. They don't have to go in that path of rebellion. And it reminds them that one day they will answer for it. It afflicts their conscience. And they don't like that. They want you to live the way they live. Because that will affirm that they're doing the right thing. Why is it that the homosexual activists and the transgender activists today are so insistent, not that we simply let them live the way they want to live, but that we affirm that it's the right thing. Well, it's because their conscience knows it's wrong. And they need somebody to pat them on the head and say, no, 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 you're doing the right thing. And when we don't do that, when we don't embrace that, well, they hate us. Because we're really reaffirming what their conscience is continually saying. Stand firm anyway. No matter what they say, no matter what they do, continue to pursue the mind of Christ. Continue to follow after the ways of the Lord and expect the gracious purposes of our judge. That's the last thing we see here. Verse 5 recalls the coming judgment, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Why is it important for God's people to remember that? Well, it's hard to endure slander and abuse from people who are persisting in their ways of rebellion. It can tempt us to turn back from the way of Christ. Or it can lead us to desire revenge against those who are speaking ill of us. It's terribly hard to pursue holiness when surrounded by those who are rebellious. So Peter reminds us, listen, those who oppose you, they'll answer for it in due time before a judge who is far more effective than you ever ever could be. On that day, Ecclesiastes 12 reminds us, on that day God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You don't even know the whole story. When somebody speaks against you, when they persecute you, when they mock you, you don't even know the whole story. You don't know what sins they're struggling with. You don't know how they've been beaten or slandered or abused. You don't know how close they are to repentance. Or how deeply they've plunged into the abyss. God knows. God knows and one day they will stand before Him for judgment. And when they do, either either He will hold them accountable for the ways they've sinned against you and the whole world will know it. Or He will look at them and say, isn't it amazing that Christ saved even you? Because they will have turned at some point, possibly even through your witness, to the one who alone could save the likes of that persecutor. But one way or another, God will work it out. God will handle it. So you don't have to. Folks, this is comfort. 
The people of this world in their idolatry and sin, they may slander you with their unfair claims and they may pass laws forbidding that you do or say what God says you must do or say. They could ruin your business. They could attack your family. They might drag you to court. They're doing it now. I just read last week in uh, a couple of different news outlets. A member of our Dutton Church was fired from the University of Michigan Medical Center for refusing to affirm, again, not just tolerate, but refusing to affirm transgender practices after 17 years as a uh, well-spoken-of, well-thought-of physician's assistant. That's going to become more and more common. They're going to keep doing it. But we don't need to worry. We don't need to fear, and we certainly don't need to get vengeance. What we do need to do is to take seriously our calling. Because we too will stand before the Lord, answering for how we responded to His gospel. We too need to live in a way that acknowledges that that day is coming, so that on that day, He will say, I understand how hard it was. I know what a struggle you faced, but you stood with Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. And to be clear, on that day, you'll just say, I only did what you empowered me to do. But what a blessing to receive that warm welcome from your Father whom you continued to acknowledge. My friends, listen. When you received the gospel... You had no power to do any of this. Verse 6 is amazing. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. That's not talking about someone preaching to people who are already dead. It's talking about how the Lord preaches, brings the word and has it proclaimed to those who are spiritually dead. They have no life in themselves. They have no power in themselves. They are walking in the way of destruction and they are bound for destruction. He preached to us when we were dead. And he gave us life. So that on the day when all men stand before the judge and give account for all that we have done and said and thought and desired, we can stand there with joy knowing that the judge is the one who suffered on our behalf, that the judge is the one who loved us enough to take everything we deserved, and we can stand there with confidence. Knowing that, keeping in mind that that day is coming, let us live today. Not for the pleasures of the flesh, not for the sins that motivate those around us, but let us live today according to the purpose of Christ. Rejecting that sin-centered purpose that once drove you and embracing instead the purpose of glorifying the Lord, reflecting the Lord, delighting in the Lord. For as our assurance of pardon reminded us, You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. Live for that glory today. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, what a blessing to have such a high and holy calling. To live not for the ways of the flesh and not for the ways that will bring your wrath, but to live even now in a way that reflects Christ. Father, you know how hard that is with the struggle against our old nature and with the struggle against those around us who continue to live for the flesh. But we pray that you would grant us the power we need. That you would strengthen us with the strength of your Holy Spirit. And that you would keep our eyes on that finish line. That day when we will stand before you hearing how you have righted all wrongs and acknowledged all injustice, but also how you receive those who were found in Christ with a love that is unquenchable and a grace that is unfathomable. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. In response to God's Word, calling us to live that life that focuses on Him. Let us acknowledge our need for His power to draw us close as we sing number 453, number 453, and we'll sing stanzas 1 and 2, 4 and 5. 